All right, we're in part four of our cross. And let's just really recap where we've been. Uh, if you, I don't know if you've seen it or not. But in part one, we looked at the fact that the cross is foolish. We looked at that the world is, you know, looking to get ahead. Look, you know, you want to win, you want to raise up, you want to do better, you want to accumulate and be strong. And the cross represents weakness, the cross represents loss, the cross represents sacrifice. And that's foolish. The world's like, well, that's stupid. Why would you give things up? Then in part two, we talked about boasting. And the fact that we, even if we are, you know, religious or Christians, we tend to boast on maybe how good we are, what a great Christian we are, things like that. And that the only boast we really have is a boast in his work. It's not about us. It's a boast of his work, his work on the cross, that we do not have our own thing to be proud of. Then last week in part three, we looked at what is an enemy and what is an enemy of the cross. And we looked at the fact that there are plenty of people who are happy to talk about God and Jesus, and yet they are actually enemies of the cross because, again, they do not embrace the idea of loss, the idea of sacrifice. They are more about self than serving, and then and self, uh, self, more about self than sacrifice, more about doing their own thing. And so they may do very good things, but it's all about, you know, hey, look what a good person I am. And it's very much about themselves as opposed to giving up, losing, even shame. We're going to talk about that more today. But the passage we're going to do today, if you grew up in it like I did, I've grown up in the church, grew up, learned the Bible, and of course, then went into ministry as I became a young adult. And so many of us are familiar with this passage. And yet, for I think many of us, if you are, now if you're not familiar with it, great, you come into it with no preconceptions. But the passage we're going to do today, uh, I know that I have taught it in a way that I think now was inaccurate and wrong. And that's kind of, kind of convicting when you say, oh my goodness, I've mishandled this passage. And uh, so it should be interesting today, it should be fun, and I hope that as we go through this, it challenges your thinking uh, if you, like me, had kind of a wrong impression of it. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12, the first 11 verses. And of course, we're coming in, if you know anything about Hebrews, Hebrews 11 is a recitation of some of the great names in Jewish history and how they, how they did a good job and how they walked by faith. And so that was Hebrews 11. And so then it's talked about all these big names. They weren't all good, wonderful people. Some of them had messed up. But it recites these historic names, and then the writer says, now let's kind of pretend that they went out, out ahead of you, and now they're sitting in the stands watching you. And so look at Hebrews 12. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Feel free to follow along in your Bible, and let's look at the first 11 verses of Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. And discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And we'll stop there. All right, there's a lot there, a lot there to unpack. So let's start. And it starts for saying, you know, we've got these witnesses, these people have gone before, now let us run, moving away from the sin which easily entangles us and the things that trip us up. And then focus on Jesus, keeping our eyes on Jesus, who endured the cross, despising the shame. And I was like, well, what does it mean to despise the shame? What does that mean? I don't talk like that. You don't talk like that. Despise the shame. So I looked that one up, and it just literally means to think against, to think against the shame. In other words, he goes, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm not going to take into account the fact that other people think this is shameful. That's all that means. It means I'm not worried about that. And then it says, and he sat down and finished. And we talked about that back in the previous series when we looked at his cross, that he was forsaken, he gave forgiveness, and he's finished. He sat down, the work of the priest finished, that God has finished his work, and he is done. There's nothing more he needs to do for us to be saved and for us to be acceptable to him. And he did this, it says, for the joy not of the experience, but for the joy set before him. In other words, he knew this would result in joy. It wouldn't be joyful, but it would result in joy. Now this passage, the popular reading of it, the way I taught it once upon a time, the popular reading is that this passage is about the loving parental punishment of correction. This is about the fact that God is sometimes, when you mess up, he's going to spank you, he's going to slap your hand, he's going to put you in time out, make you sit in the corner, whatever, but don't worry, he loves you. And in fact, if you find yourself sinning and God doesn't give you a little whack on the fanny, you might not be saved, and you should need to think about that because God's going to correct and punish children he loves. That's, you know, I talked about parents, that's, I've taught that, and most of us, that's what we've learned forever. I don't think that's right, and let me show you why. Well, first, we need to understand the setting of what we're reading. The book of Hebrews is written to Jews, Hebrews, who had left Judaism in its formal sense with the sacrificial system and circumcision and all the trappings of what it meant to be a good Jew to embrace Jesus as Messiah. They had come to understand Jesus as Messiah, and that wasn't going well with their society, because their society, led by the Pharisees, was still enforcing Judaism. And we see that even back before Jesus, even really before, you know, before he even died. Remember the man who was born blind, and then when he was 
healed, the Pharisees got involved, his parents wouldn't even stick up for him because they didn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. Because your whole life centered around the Jewish community. You were God's people. And so it wasn't just where you went for an hour on Sunday. This was your life. It was your parents, your grandparents, your kids, your friends, your best friend that you grew up with and went through synagogue together. And if you abandoned the faith, you got kicked out of it all. And earlier in Hebrews, some of them even said they had, been, they had lost their property, which for a Jew is particularly traumatic because this is part of your inheritance. And yet, because they had abandoned the people of God, so they were under tremendous pressure to go back. Go back to being a good Jewish person who obeys the laws of Judaism and go back and start doing those sacrifices and get your kids circumcised and follow the rules because that's what it means to be a child of God. And you have been expelled. And they would be, you'd be expelled from the family. Your parents aren't speaking to you. Your sister doesn't answer the phone. You know, you, you, can't, you can't hang out. Your best friend that you grew up with won't have anything to do with you because you are no longer a child of God because you've abandoned the children of God. And God's mad at you. And so they felt tremendous pressure. And so in the middle of this, this is being written to them to reassure them. And the whole book of Hebrews is written to reassure them that you didn't make the wrong choice. You are correct in embracing Jesus. And so earlier in the book, if you read through the book of Hebrews, it'll say things like, okay, yeah, Moses is good, but Jesus is better. Priesthood was one thing, but Jesus is better than the priesthood. All right, the law was this, but Jesus is better than the law. And all the way through, it takes all the different parts of what it meant to be a Jew, and says, yes, but Jesus is better. And that's what Hebrews 11 is. We say, well, it's the hall of faith. No, really, it was Jesus is better than your Jewish history. That's the lesson of Hebrews 11. It says all these champions of Jewishness were actually only champions because of God's work, by faith, not by works. That's the message of Hebrews 11. It was, and that's what, remember, if you read it, it says, by faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Moses did this. By faith, by faith. Every one of these guys, it wasn't that they were such great Jewish successes. It was God's work by faith. And then in verse 12, he says, and now understanding that these ones who trusted Jesus, now you trust Jesus. And then he says in verse 3, I know it's hard for you. You've endured hostility. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners. He's not talking about the pagan world. He's talking about the Jewish world. Consider how he suffered so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In other words, I know it feels bad. Remember, it was bad for Jesus too. Verse 4, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. And we read that and go, that's reproof. That's correction. We're good at that because, you know, Christianity is about doing the right thing. And here, it sounds like correction, but it's not. This is not a reprimand for not fighting hard enough. We say, well, you haven't fought sin hard enough. You haven't bled yet. You should probably cut off a hand or something. Then you fought sin. Then you're a real good Christian. No, what he's saying is, I know that you're suffering, but you haven't suffered that much yet. Jesus actually has suffered more. So be encouraged. It could be worse. 
That's what it means. Consider him who has endured such hostility. Be encouraged. You're being treated like they treated Jesus. This is encouragement, right? That's what he said. So that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Don't lose heart. It's okay. It's okay to be treated badly. And you haven't even, they haven't even started killing you yet. So that's good. That's what it means. This is encouragement, not how come you haven't shed blood. It's, hey, at least you haven't had to shed blood yet. Because that, that could come. <laughs> and, and not just that, as they're discouraged, as they're feeling attacked, then he says this, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And so here's the first of what's going to be a series of reassurances that as they're being told, you're not a child of God anymore because you're not acting right, because you're not a good Jewish boy or girl anymore. Therefore, you are outside of the family. And he starts by saying, and here's what God says to you as his child, his exhortation as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Two things here. So first, he says, a reminder as family. And then he says, whom the Lord loves. Do not regard dis lightly the discipline of the Lord. Now, discipline, we, the minute we hear discipline, we think of what happens when you're in the grocery store, right? And the kid's not behaving. And if you're the parent, you're like, you wait till we get in the van. And if it's bad enough, I remember one time, my, my wife, years ago, she's like, Actually, you're not going to have to wait to get in the van. We're going to get in the van now. We can come back for the groceries. Or you're watching some other parent, you're going, they need to discipline their kid. And what do you mean? Correction. My dad called it the Board of Education applied to the seat of knowledge, you know? But that's not it. We also, if you go into, if you decide to go to college or technical school or something, you may enter into a discipline, like the medical discipline. And when you go into the medical discipline, it doesn't mean that you'll be a doctor so you can spank people. All right? That's not what it means. <laughs> what it means is, no, this is a series of training. Well, that's what the word means. The word literally means tutorage or education or training. We translate it discipline and we start thinking of corrective for doing wrong. But this just means training to do right. It means training to do right. This is your education. This is your tutoring. And in verse 5, it does say, and he may correct you too, nor faint when you are reproved by him. So it also mentions he does correct us. So he does correct us, but that is not what this passage is primarily concerned with. He says, so don't faint if he does have to correct you, but do not regard lightly his training. Instead, he says something Really amazing in verse 6. He says something really amazing in verse 6. For those whom the Lord loves, he trains. And he scourges every son he receives. Because, see, they're sitting there going, God must be mad at me. And they're being told, oh, he is mad at you because you've abandoned the family. And he goes, actually... What you're suffering is because he loves you, not because he's mad at you. And this is why it troubles me, because I used to teach this as, well, he loves you, but he's upset. 
you messed up, you sinned, and so he's got to kind of, you know, I do that as a parent. I love you, but right now, this is not going to go well for you. And we read it that way, and yet, that's, they already felt that way. They already felt that God was mad at them. And he says, no, no, God loves you. You are suffering not because you've done something wrong, but because you did something right. And he who the Lord loves, he trains. And every son gets scourged. See, we, we add a word in our heads, every disobedient son. But that's not what it says. They were being told they weren't sons anymore. And he says, no, you are. In fact, this is a sign of sonship. This is a sign that you've been accepted. And he adds to that, he adds to that further. Verse 7, God is dealing with you as his children because they'd been told they weren't. God deals with you as sons. Which son wouldn't get this? In fact, if you are with, verse 8, if you're without discipline, if you aren't suffering in this way, without this testing, without this training, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. So see, he takes what they've been told and flips it. Because they're being told, you know, your best friend, you know, little Billy here, he's still going to tabernacle. He's still doing the sacrifices. He did the circumcision. See, he's, God still loves him. He's a child of Israel. And you, uh, you need to be like Billy. And the writer of Hebrews says, actually, you know how Billy's not suffering anything? Everything's going great for him and everybody loves him and everything's going well? That's a poor sign for Billy. It means he's probably not a child of God. And what you're going through shows you are because this is what happens to people who follow Jesus. And that's why that verse 3 is important because remember what Jesus went through. The Son of God suffered. This is what happens to the world, in the world to the children of God. Your suffering is not a sign that you've been rejected. It's a sign you've been accepted. And your friends who are not suffering... And Jesus had talked about that earlier. He says, beware if the world loves you. Something's going wrong. Because they hated me first, and they'll hate you. And so often, we say, why is this happening? So this is reassurance for those who feel rejected. And the people who are rejecting you, and their lives are going great because they're following all the rules. They're the ones who are illegitimate. In verse 10, 9 and 10 he says, you know, this is like earthly fathers. They trained us for a while. And now God is training you. They did it for a short time, seemed best to them. But then look at verse, second part of verse 10. But he does it for your good, so that you may share in his holiness. He says, this isn't about God trying to take things away from you. This is God trying to bring you into something. This is him bringing in, you into the family. You're not in trouble you're being brought into the family. He is training you and preparing you for being part of his people, for being part of his family, for being his child. But then he makes a very true statement, which is so important, verse 11. So you're being trained like a dad who trained. He says, but I know it seems, it seems sorrowful. The suffering is hard. And see, that's a direct callback to what we saw at the beginning of the passage where it said, what did Jesus do? He endured the cross 
fought against the shame, and finished. He says, now what are we going to do? Endure. He goes, for a while it's not fun. It does not seem joyful, but sorrowful. He says, but then, notice what he says, but those who have been trained by it, it yields righteousness because God is teaching you. God is training you into his family, his kingdom. And so this is so important because, again, this passage, we have taught it, we have absorbed it as this is what happens when I'm doing wrong, and this is about this is what happens when you've done the right choice. So let's talk about that. Let's unpack it. Apply it to us. The first, the pain and shame of the cross is temporary. The pain and shame of the cross is temporary. Jesus' shame, Jesus' suffering ended. It says, and he sat down. He got through it. You will too. But the suffering is intentional to teach us, to train us. Because we're all immersed in this world. Every single one of us, because we, we were born here, we grew up here, and so we think like the world, we operate like the world, and God's like, and I'm bringing you out of that into a new kingdom, and that you have to learn a new way of understanding your whole life. And it's painful to let go of all that, and so I'm going to take it away from you. Why? Because it's not good for you, and I'm going to give you something better, and so I'm going to draw you out of this because I am training you into this much better, awesome life that I have for you but this is going to be hard. It's going to hurt. Why? Because I'm pulling you out of everything that you've known that was so bad. And so I am training you to this new focus, and it's going to look like suffering, and you're not going to enjoy it. Why? Because my and your default tendency is self-satisfaction. I mean, we're all motivated by it. We want to take care of ourselves. We want to feel good, be good. And it doesn't matter how much you study the Bible, how many, I mean, we're all here today, right? Or you're on the stream today and we sing the worship songs and we study the word and we pray and, oh man, filled with the spirit. Yay, amen, hallelujah. And then you guys are going to go home and I'm tired. And I'll say, all right, and now I'm going to do what's good for me. I'm not going to be sinful about it, but I'm going to want to serve myself because that's instinctive. I can't help it. I just do. I immediately go to, okay, quiet down. My, wife, my daughter asked me this morning, she goes, what's the plan for Sunday afternoon? I said, collapse. And that wasn't, I'm going to serve the Lord by collapsing. I'm like, no, no, I'm tired. I'll serve the Lord and then I'll serve me. And you say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with taking care of me. But the problem is taking care of me quickly turns into self-service because that's my natural instinct. And God has called me to self-sacrifice the cross. And that, oh, the way to sacrifice means I have to give up my self-service, my self-satisfaction, my self-comfort, my self-care, which is so instinctive, I do it without, I never have to try. It's always right there. But what is he drawing me towards? Towards joy. Why did Jesus endure such suffering? For the joy sat before him. There was something greater to come. We call it the resurrection. So that's the next sermon series. Tune in in three weeks. 
as we're going to study the resurrection. What does it mean for us? It means something better coming. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. So what does that mean? It means that hard times are not a sign of God's displeasure, but His acceptance. And that messes with our head. Verse 6, whom the Lord loves, He trains. And every child He receives, He scourges. Scourges is a nasty word. Scourging hurts. But it says He does that to everyone He loves. Why? Is God kind of sadistic? No. This is love because He's training you out of the poison of this world that we are so in love with. Now, what do you and I do? So yesterday, we went down for the weekend and visited Sarah's folks, uh, boil some sap and stuff like that. And we're driving home. And we get out on the, the interstate turnpike coming home. And all of a sudden, the van starts making a new noise and doesn't drive right anymore. And we got like over an hour to still to come home. And it stressed me out. And I nursed the thing, and it's home now. And we borrowed, Nana brought, us, brought the family to church. I had the car. And I'm, I'm unhappy. I'm stressed. Why? Because my van's not working right. And then, you know, the, the thought goes through your head, went through mine. God, are you mad at me? I don't mean mad like wrath mad, but I'm like, okay, what'd I do? You have that one thought of, you know, is this because of this attitude or that attitude? Is God trying to teach me a lesson because of my sin? Is that why he's letting me suffer, and it's, I mean, suffering goes, it's just a vehicle, mis- not the end of the world, you know, but it felt like big potatoes, because I'm thinking about, now the van doesn't work, will we get home, and I got to spend money, which messes with what, my self-comfort, God, are you mad at me, God, are you upset with me, God, why are you, you must be allowing this because of something I've done, right, it's instinctive, which, what's the view of God there, that God's sitting there going, oh, you messed up again to take you to the woodshed, which is not an overly warm sense for God. You're like, well, I know he loves me, but right now he's mad at me or he's put out with me. And the author says, no, that's not what's happening. God's not sitting there going, Ira, this isn't because I'm mad at you. This is because I love you in that stupid van. When you get too comfortable, you forget how much I've given you. I'm trying to help you here, not punish you. I'm not trying to take something away from you in a painful way. I'm trying to give you something, and that's in the way. I'm trying to help you because I love you, and I'm trying to give you, not take. But I don't see God graciously because the devil is constantly saying, you know, I think he's up to something. And so we forget that God is full of love and grace and mercy who is eager to pour out in my life. But because I want him to pour out for me in my temporary comfort, and God's like, I want to give you something way greater than that, And so, yeah, sometimes it's going to be rough right now because I want to give you something greater, not treasure on earth, which will break down and require mechanics. And so hard times are not a sign of his displeasure. And if you're going through a hard time, don't start with, why is God mad at me? Why is God punishing me? No, it's a sign of his love. And yet it hurts to have things taken away that you want. But he's not taking it away because he's mad at you. He's taking it away because he loves you and he wants to give you something greater. 
He's treating you as a child that he adores, not a child that he's upset with. What happens with us? Our churchianity is often angry. But the early apostles and the early Christians rejoiced in persecution because of this. They loved this idea. And that's why it says at one point, Paul and those guys, they got arrested, they got beaten. And it says, and then they went away and they said, and they rejoiced that they had been found worthy to suffer. They were like, wow, God loves us so much that we get beat up. We're like, well, that's stupid, right? Because the cross is... This is the audience participation part. I realize everybody on the stream just said it. The cross is foolish. It's foolish. Why would you celebrate being beat up? Because they knew verse 3. Consider him who has endured such hostility. He's letting us be like him. This is awesome. And that's how the early Christians, it doesn't mean that they enjoyed the suffering, but they enjoyed what the suffering meant. They saw it as a sign of God's love and privilege. We'll come back to this in a couple of weeks after Easter. But in our churchianity, we get mad when we're just inconvenienced. We're angry and indignant if people don't understand us. Well, they got to understand, we're the, we're the church, we're the people of God, and they can't treat us that way. That's just not right. And we get all put out. And the early apostles are like, isn't it awesome that we can suffer? Because they had absorbed this lesson from Hebrews, which says, and, and Jesus said, he goes, hey, rejoice when the world hates you. They hated me first. If everyone speaks well at you, something might be going wrong. Because Jesus' world isn't this world. And if you're comfortable here, then maybe you're missing out on what he has for you. Because he is drawing you out of this corrupt, broken world. And being drawn out hurts it hurts to be pulled away from the things that you love. You know, here's you know, Wildrick's living this. It hurts to leave a place you love. But if something new is being given to you, well, the pain's worth it. And that's how Jesus looked at the cross. This hurts, but for the joy set before me, I'll go through it. I'll endure. And I won't worry about the fact that it looks shameful. I won't worry about the fact that people think I'm wrong. I'll think against that. I don't normally like to jump to the passages, but turn over to Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. We just have to get this perspective. Philippians 3, verse 10. Paul's talking about what he's lost, because Paul, of course, was really one at being a Jew. He was a Pharisee, and he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He got an A-plus in being a good Pharisee. He was awesome. He says, you know, I, I, was a, I was a zeal, persecuted the church. I was blameless of the law. And he goes, and whatever I have, verse 7, it was lost. I'm ready to give it up. Everything I had, I'm ready to lose. In fact, verse 8, I'm going to lose everything for the value of knowing Christ Jesus. I've suffered the loss of all things, but I'm willing to consider it rubbish that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, I'm not righteous in my own. I'm not a good person in my own, but I have righteousness that God gave me. Verse 10, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We'll get to that in two, two weeks, three weeks. And the fellowship of his suffering. The word fellowship means partnership, means I'm going to join you in your suffering. I'm going to partner with you, Jesus, in your suffering. Being conformed to his death. 
I want to know Jesus. I want to live his life. And his life here hurts. And we could say, as the writer of Hebrews says, and we have not had to suffer to the point of shedding blood. That's not been called for us yet. We're actually doing pretty good. I mean, we can cry persecution, but we're really not. We've been inconvenienced. But nobody's told us we can't worship. They tell us sometimes we have to worship slightly differently. But never once have I been told what I can and cannot say. The day may come. And then what do we do? Say, hey, praise the Lord. If we can suffer. That I might know him and share in that. It's temporary. Are you up for the training? Are you up for the training? It's hard. This whole come to Jesus and everything's going to work out. Not earthly speaking. Oh my goodness, no. That's a seductive sales pitch. But it's not one Jesus ever gave. They said, Jesus, I want to follow you. He says, are you really ready for that? You're going to have to give up stuff. Even his disciples said, we want to sit on your right and left hands. He says, do you know what that's going to cost you? Do you want to live my life? You have no idea where this is coming. And they didn't. They found out later, and a lot of them died. We'll come back to that idea in a couple weeks too. Have you tried to avoid the cross? I do. I don't want to suffer. That's foolish. I don't want things to be hard. Again, why was I, why was I frustrated last night when my van wasn't working? Because I don't want anything to be hard. I, don't, I want the van to work forever. Well, that's stupid too. <laughs> Unrealistic, I guess. I don't think it's stupid to want that. It's just stupid to expect it. But I am so quick to want to avoid the cross. I don't want to suffer. Neither do, and we don't. Because that's our natural tendency. And God's like, I'm going to teach you something different. I'm going to teach you to value different things. And this teaching, for the moment, will not seem joyful. But later, when it plays out in your life, you'll be glad that I taught you because I love you. I think we need to pay close attention to Hebrews 11.8. I'm sorry, he was 12.8. If you're without discipline, if you're without this training that everyone who is a child has partaken of, then you're not a child. Instead of saying, why am I suffering? Maybe we need to say, why aren't I? Am I giving up? Am I finding the pain of separating from the world? It's so easy to feel like God must be mad at us because we know he has reason to, right? You know, when, when I started wondering whether God was trying to teach me a lesson, it wasn't because I was unaware of the fact that I have things that he could be mad at. And we quickly go back to, well, I know he's got reason to be mad at me, but that's why we don't understand grace. God doesn't look the other way at my sin. He sees it more clearly than I do, but his response to my sin is not with disfavor, but with the favor of Christ with grace and mercy poured out that is so much greater than my sin. And that's why he's not going to look at me and get mad because he always promised he's done. Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no longer any anger. His work is finished and the anger is gone if you have accepted his forgiveness. 
He is going to train you, and the training is going to hurt, but his training is not because he's upset with you or he's impatient with you. He knew how sinful you were when he first died for you. And his motivation towards you is one of gently and lovingly and firmly pulling you away from all the garbage in your life that you love but needs to be replaced by something greater. You will never lose anything that you will not experience in far greater measure the right way in him in the life to come. And although it may be hurtful right now, it's for our good. Father, I just thank you for the reminder we've had today. For the reminder that you love us. Lord, we just celebrated this act of love that you would come innocent and holy and righteous and die the death of a criminal, a despised criminal, a rejected man, full of shame and dishonor, that you would accept that kind of death and suffering because you loved us so much that you wanted to take that which we really deserve so that we would never get what we deserve, but instead would get what you desire for us, which is your grace and love and forgiveness and favor. Behold what manner of love that you have for us, that we would be called your children. And forgive us for the times that we forget that you love us. And we see the, the hurtful things and the hard things and we think you're mad at us when really you're trying to help us by pulling us away from things that we love but we shouldn't have or that we shouldn't have the way we have them because we've made them too important to us. We've made them part of serving ourselves. We've made them part of creating a world in which our pleasure, our comfort, our security is rested in us, not in you. Lord, the things of this world are passing away. And the desire for those things will go with it. And so you're trying to help us get over it now. That we might desire a much greater thing. Treasure in heaven that won't break down, rot away, be corrupted by age or disease, be taken away by force. May our heart be with our treasure with you. And thank you for the reminder, the exhortation of sons, sons and daughters that you have accepted us. And when we feel the pain, it's your loving hand guiding us into your kingdom and out of ours. Lord, we look forward to the resurrection. We look forward to the day when the training's over. We graduate this world. Until then, Lord, may we be symbols of this hope, symbols of this new way of life. Our world is surrounded by very, is full of just very angry people. They're either angry or they're scared or both. They're murderous or despairing. They're scared to death of losing. And yet everything in this world is going to pass away. So may we offer hope in you. Thank you for that hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.